Theology Pit. Theology Pit. You're falling in the Theology Pit. Alright everybody, welcome back to the Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with the Bottomless Pit, because as you know, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. And then starvation sets in. But hey, you know, maybe you'll have a bottle of water with you, and uh, starvation comes first. But look, we have finished our series on uh, the application of the atonement, and what Christians have believed historically in it, and have looked at you know, all of them through history. And, you know, I'm I'm working on the stuff right now for the next series. But in between those series, I want to do some theology pits like this, where I just kind of look at, you know, different doctrines of different churches, different denominations, and comment on them and about them. And if you've been listening to Theology Pit, whenever I look at some stuff, um, I have a certain understanding historically of where they come from and what they say. And well, you know, you might not be able to do that yet. Keep listening to the theology pit because you will eventually, you know, gain the knowledge to be able to assess uh, what these things mean and where they come from. First and foremost, um, I started with the application of the atonement and understanding justification and understanding salvation Uh, partly focusing on justification, on that aspect of it, because I believe that that's where the gospel hinges, is on um, the doctrine of justification, much as uh, Martin Luther has said before me. So when I go through declarations of faith, when I go through statements of faith that churches have, if I'm looking at a church, if I'm shopping around for a new church, one of the things I'm going to ask for is the statement of faith. I want to know, what does this church believe? And by looking carefully at the wording, because this is one discipline, um, theology is a discipline where words have meaning and they have intent and it's, it's very, very precise and very, very specific. You have to really understand what wording they're using because of the implications. Now, if they don't understand where the implications come from, uh, they might not. They might not agree with it. They might not hold to it. Whenever you say, well, do you guys really believe this? And then say, so, well, no, 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 we don't believe that. Well, you know, your statement says this. And they're like, well, that's not exactly what we meant. It, 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 I see how it can be taken that way, but that might not be what we mean uh, when we you know, d- discuss those sort of things. So I have a couple statements of faith in front of me. We're going to spend this time walking through them. And if you'd like to send me a statement of faith, feel free to. In looking at statements of faith, um, I want to start off by kind of looking at the statements that, um, you know, we would see as problematic, or at least I would see as problematic. It, and, and I say that, I, and I don't mean, as you know from the theology pit, that, you know, just because somebody rejects what I believe, that is not a damnation reject, okay, rejection. That is not something where I say, if you don't believe this, then you're going to hell, or you have no hope of salvation, or you can't be saved. But we're going to specifically look at some doctrines that'll say just that. If you don't believe this, or if you don't hold to this, then you're not saved, or more than likely you're not saved. Some of them don't go that far, 
and some aren't that explicit. But when you look at the wording and you look at what's important, then you can kind of, you know, start to get the certain feel. Now, when we talked about justification, we really set them up in two camps. We set it up in one camp where the action takes place in you. If you remember when we talked about the gratia infusa or the grace that is infused within you, that this type of grace is what God gives and it changes you by changing your heart, changing your mind, and therefore allowing you to respond. It makes you savable to where you are able to respond to God and either solidify his favor or merit his favor, and thereby saving and justifying. And, you know, people have said that this is works-based salvation, and I I would like to kind of clarify something. I don't believe that this is a works-based salvation. I don't. Because technically, you're not doing any of the work. God is doing everything in you, and he is empowering you to do something. And without his empowerment, you could not do those works. So therefore, the works that are being done are God through you. Okay, so it is through faith that's being done. When I hear works-based salvation, here's what I think. I think of something where you actually have to go out and you have to do something in order for you to measure up to God's standards. Okay, for example, um, you would look at the Ten Commandments and you would say, I have to keep the Ten Commandments and you would keep all the law. You would keep all of the law of the Old Testament and say, I'm doing this because not only do I have to do it, but I got to do some extra because I have to make up for all the stuff that I haven't done. And I have to make sure that everything's covered. And if everything's not covered, then I have a problem, you know, and I have to work and strive as hard as I can. And hopefully, hopefully all of my works at the end of my life will be weighed and they will be good enough. And God will let me in. He will look at me. He will look at my merits and he will you know, accept them or he will reject them. That's a works-based salvation, okay? Lots of religions believe in a works-based salvation. Islam believes in a works-based salvation. Um, Hinduism, you know, believes in a works-based salvation. Although if you have the reincarnation aspect in it, it there's a, a tier series of rewards. Uh, Mormonism is based in a works-based salvation. Um, you have a lot of these different religions that say, I have to do these things so that I can be good enough for God. I'm making it up for what I've done bad. And God has shown me the way, and therefore I can you know, do this stuff. That's a works-based salvation. A merit-based salvation is different because this is where God empowers you by pouring something in you and thereby making it possible for you to do the works that he requires of you. So let's take it from the most basic view. That's, I would say, sounds similar to a works-based salvation, but really isn't. And that would be within um, Roman Catholicism, uh, the Eastern Orthodox uh, views, the um, sanative understanding, the understanding that says that through the community of believers, God has given this grace that is able to be distributed and able to be poured into you. And by that pouring into you, that changes your heart. And by that changing your heart, 
you are then being justified. Justified is not a moment in time. It is not a past tense thing. It is like sanctification. Justification and sanctification are the same thing. Sanctification, you're being set aside. Justification, you're being made righteous with God. Your sins are being forgiven. And as you commit sins, you have a way then to obtain more grace, um, infusing this grace within you, and therefore, you're constantly on this path. Now, without God, if you take God out of the equation, it is impossible for you to receive this grace. You see, in a works-based salvation, the thought of grace is not in there as though it is something that is external, that is being poured into you and making it internal. A works-based salvation is strictly you, devoid of grace, doing works, where a merit-based salvation is you and God working together, okay, in order for you to be saved. God is the primary cause, and you are the secondary cause. In, in a way, you're a co-redeemer, okay? The entire church is a co-redeemer. This is not a a one-on-one type thing. This is not a me and Jesus mentality. This is not a Lone Ranger Christian type thing, okay? So when you're doing these things that God has asked and that God has provided and he's pouring into you and by him, you know, meriting, pouring the stuff in you so that you can merit God's favor in order to get more grace so that you can be savable, so that you are being saved. You are in this process. This is not a works-based salvation. I want to make that clear. Okay. This is, let's just call it emeritus view. I think that would be the the best way to think about it and describe it. So we have works-based and we have merit-based. Now I want to get to what I would call the free grace view, okay? And and I would say that this is the all-God view. Now this is the forensic view. Maybe that'd be a better way to put it, the forensic view. Now the forensic view is that God declares you to be just, and therefore you are, okay? The action is taking place in God, which is different from the the meriting view. The meriting view, the action is taking place within you. Okay, do you understand? Now, the action is in the merit view is coming from God, yes, but it is taking place inside of you. Where the forensic view, the action takes place with God. That's it. That's the difference. So I think that that's a really good way to keep these three aspects separate between a works-based salvation, a merit-based salvation, and a forensic salvation. Or a friend, let's just say justification, how we are made right before God. Now, with justification, two things are taking place, okay? Um, sins are being forgiven, and you are being righteous, okay? And it's not that you are being made right as though from this moment on you are considered righteous, but it is from your entire existence, you are considered to have done everything that Jesus did. His life is your life. His righteousness is your righteousness. He did everything for you, okay? This is what is being declared, that you have been righteous. God says it, and it is so, because what God says goes. He created the universe, by speaking and the universe leapt into existence. His word, when we discussed the word logos and we talked about what that meant and how the, 
you know, ancient Greeks thought about it, the Stoics thought about it, and this divine emanation. This is the type of imagery that we are that we are pulling from. That Christ is the Logos. He is the Word of God. He was with God. He, everything created was created through him. He has that power. He sits at the right hand of the father. He is in control. He is our high priest and king. It's all about Jesus and what he's done. And this is what has been declared to be yours. And so that is different because it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you do. It's impossible to merit this kind of justification because of the nature of what kind of justification it is. There's nothing that you can do at all to add to it or take away from it because the action is taking place outside of you, extra nose outside of you. Um, everything that is occurring within justification has nothing to do with you. Sanctification. Yes. A ton of it has to do with you. There is so much under sanctification where it is you and God working together. You and the Holy Spirit are working to set yourself apart from the world, to become more and more holy, let's say, to become more and more uh, righteous. You are actually working on yourself. Now, you are, are already positionally righteous with God. That's why the scripture can say that the fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much, because if you are in Christ and as you are praying with the help of the Holy Spirit in your utterances, even if they are unintelligible utterances. The Holy Spirit is translating for you in a way, and it is through Christ to the Father. God is completely involved in every aspect of your life in sanctification and is helping you and aiding you and making it all acceptable because of Christ and because of the work that he has done. So when we look at these statements of faith, now I might read through a lot of them, um, like all of the statement of faith, but I do want to look at them and specifically focus on their aspects when it comes to salvation and justification. Because if you've listened to the theology pit and you've listened to all of the series on uh, salvation, on the application of the atonement, that's where your ears are going to perk up. Hopefully you're going to be very, very sensitive to the wording and to you know what's being said here and what's going on. The first one I want to look at um, is the Church of God. Now, the Church of God is part of the Pentecostal movement, okay? And really, you you have like a split that occurred between the Church of God and Pentecostals, the charismatic movement. Um, and you can see in the two different directions, some of them have a very big emphasis on uh, supernatural sign gifts. And these would be things like slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, uh, those sort of things, where the other side will be more, and, th and that's what would be called a continuationist or a hard continuationist. And that means that the, the spiritual gifts have continued from the first century. Now, there are also soft continuationists, people that say, well, yeah, the, the gifts have continued, but they're not normative. They, they still occur, maybe in different places, but they are not normative. And, and that's the difference, where the hard continuationists would say, no, they're occurring now, they should be occurring now, we should see healings all over the place, we should see this. And some people have argued and said, 
Well, no, then they'd be called normals and not miracles if that's how they always happen. They wouldn't be miraculous, they would be normal. And that's what we should normally expect to see. But, you know, that's that's kind of how you can tell the difference between the two within this particular uh, Pentecostal movement, within this particular branch. The Church of God seems to fall into, I would say, the soft continuationist, and, and there are two others, too. There's the soft cessationist and the, and the hard cessationist. Soft cessationist says that they're, they're very similar to the soft continuationist. They would say more, the spiritual gifts cease to exist, but that doesn't mean that they still can't occur or that they still wouldn't occur. The hard cessationist would say, well, the spiritual gifts actually have ceased and they never occur again because the point of them occurring was to give validity to the scriptures and to the apostles and to their writings. We have the Bible, there is no need for them, and therefore they aren't used. And the difference between the um, soft cessationist and the soft continuationist, the soft continuationist would say they're still going on, but they're sparse. The soft cessationist would say, they don't go on at all, but if they do, it's sparse. Okay, so one, it's it's really, they're, they're almost saying the exact same thing. One is saying that we should expect to see them. The other is saying we shouldn't expect to see them, but both are saying it's possible that they could happen. One's just saying we should expect it. The other is saying we shouldn't expect it. Okay, so Church of God here. In their declaration of faith, and I'm getting this from churchofgod.org, you know, if you want the full thing, forward slash beliefs, forward slash declaration, dash of, dash faith. So you can look it up, and hey, you can read along with me. Um, Now, here's some interesting things that we can pick up on. The first thing that they hold to in their belief is in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, okay? What this means is, and when we get into um, our study on the Bible, bibliology, and we look at it, you might not right now pick up in what this means, okay? And I look at this, and I immediately know where they're going with this, okay? And what this means is that the Bible, in its inspiration, that every single word in the Bible is the Word of God. Every single word that is there is inspired. It all has meaning. It all has relevance. Now, what's interesting that they don't point out in this is in the original languages. A lot of times you'll have that clause in a lot of statements of faith that they, they will, they will say it a little bit differently. They won't, they won't even go with verbal inspiration. Um, They would say that they believe the Bible to be inerrant in its original translations. Okay. Saying that translations today are not the same as the autographs, the original autographs. And and that means the writings, the original writings. But by it saying this, this is very interesting because when you look at Scripture, and some people are saying, well, don't all Christians believe in every single word of the Bible being the inspired? Well, not necessarily. They do, but they don't. And here's what I mean by that. And and this comes into the idea of translations and um, going from one language to another. And if you speak two languages, you you completely understand this this concept. But you have two, and I'm, we're gonna we're gonna get kind of fancy here. So here's some big words: ipsissima verba. Okay, ipsissima verba means that the very words are inspired. Ipsissima vox mean the very voice 
is inspired. So the meaning of the text, what God is communicating, that that is what we consider to be inspired. You can translate that and say that any way that you want, and it is the Word of God as long as it is staying true to the intent that the author was making. If you go outside of that, they would say no. In the Old Testament understanding um, with their hermeneutics, and we'll get in, into this in, in, our, in our series in the future here, um, they, would, they had something called letterism, where even the shape of the letters had a certain meaning to it. Okay, this is one step up from that. And the, that's Epistema Verba would have be one step up from letterism where it's each word. One step up from that would be the voice, the meaning, the phrase, the, the unit of thought, which is called the pericope, the unit of thought, that message that's coming out, that that is, is what is inspired. So by them saying this declaration of faith that they believe, and this is the very first thing, is that the verbal inspiration of the Bible, every single word is inspired by the Bible. Now, they don't say in original manuscripts, which leads me to believe that they would hold to there being a particular version of the Bible that they would say is inspired. And more than likely, and I haven't even dug into this um, website at all, I just kind of went right to this, this statement and reading through it, and I'm kind of guessing that they would hold to what's call, called the authorized version, which is the 1611 King James version. Now, there have been other um, you know uh, changes to it since 1611. You do have different versions of that. But most notably, it would be just the, what's called the King James Version or the Authorized Version. If you ever read any literature and they are talking about the Authorized Version when they talk about the Bible, this is what they're talking about. And a lot of times they lead, lean this way. And it's understandable on why they do, because if they're saying that the very words are inspired, they need to have a baseline of what the very words are. And they say, we are saying that this is the very baseline right here. It is the authorized version, the King James version of the Bible. So all other translations have to match up with the authorized version. Even, even if they found ancient manuscripts from like, um, the Alexandria era, the Alexandrian manuscripts, which are generally older than the Byzantine manuscripts that the, that the uh, King James version is based off of. But these Alexandrian manuscripts, and they had better uh, transmission, they had better uh, translators, you know, uh, transmitting uh, the, the scripture, staying closer to the wording. They had a different philosophy whenever they were um, transmitting scripture. And we'll get into that too in, in this next series. But um, they would look at that and say, if that doesn't match up to what we have, then that is wrong and we are right. It kind of goes with the old joke. If, if the King James version of the Bible was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me, you know, and the whole thing is, uh, you know, well, Jesus and the apostles only spoke old English, but they could only write in Greek. And we didn't really have the Bible until we got the King James version of the Bible. Those are all jokes. I understand that they're bad jokes, but they are hyperbolically stating. So as soon as I look at a statement of faith, as soon as I see it and I see this is the very first thing that's in it and the very first thing that they are expressing, and I can kind of guess where this is coming from and, and what's happening with it, without even looking at the rest of the statement of faith, I can immediately formulate this has an Anabaptist background. This has this uh, Baptist understanding 
which is then a free church understanding, non-liturgical worship, a, a free church style. It is very um, individualistic in that sense. It has a lot to do with free will because of, um, you know, influences um, that kind of, you know, that we talked about that, that came through that line, the, the line of Erasmus, the line of the people who thought that it was very important for the people to read the Bible for themselves and just, you know, kind of stand on that very, um, you know, New Testament-ish understanding in their um, hermeneutics, which is the art and science of biblical interpretation, um, because they would be looking to that for it, and they are would be ignoring like a Midrashic or a Pesher, which is a more of a, a Jewish and Old Testament way of, of looking at things. Um, so I can sit here and say, okay, baptism is going to be extremely important for them for salvation within their salvation plan, not in their justification plan, but in their salvation plan. Okay. I'm also looking at this saying, because of this, they are going to stress big time with human responsibility. And therefore it is going to be a gratia infusa understanding of justification and not a, um, a forensic declaration understanding that God is going to cleanse our hearts, going to change us, and therefore giving us the ability to merit his favor and to be justified. Let's see if I'm right. Let's continue on with this declaration. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do this with all you know, all points of each declaration of faith. I'm just letting you know how my mental process is. What's happening in my head as I look at a statement of faith, and usually the what's right at the top of the statement of faith is what this group sees to be as the most important. And to it, in my opinion, putting the Bible at the top is not the worst thing in the world. I think it's a very good thing. I'm not knocking them for that. I'm just, you know, explaining why I think that they're doing it and where it's going. So let's see if I'm right with that. Okay, so uh, the second point that they make is that they believe in one God eternally exist, existing in three persons, namely the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Number th- three. Uh, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father, conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, that Jesus was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and that he ascended uh, to heaven and is today at the right hand of the Father as the intercessor. Now, this is really a very quick summary statement between two and three of the Nicene Creed or the Constantinopolitan Creed of the fourth century that that we went over. Also, you can throw in the Athanasius uh, Creed in there. That I think in the Pits of Conception, I went through those. And that's all that is, is that's just a creed, a quick, it's actually a quick summary of a quick summary <laughs> is, is what it um, amounts to. The, no, point number four, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that repentance is commanded of God for all and necessary for forgiveness of sins. This gives me pause. Why does this give me pause? Well, let's, I'll read it again just a little bit slowly because I'm going kind of fast here. I get excited with this stuff. Listen, I'm going to read it and and listen carefully to this wording, okay? That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that repentance is commanded by God. For, you have to repent, for for all and necessary, your repentance is necessary for forgiveness of sins. All right, do you catch that? Do you catch what's going on here? That because of the Bible... We can read the Bible and we can see that God has commanded for all 
that they need to repent. This then tells us that we have some type of ability to do this. If we have this type of ability to do this, what is the reason for it? Forgiveness of sins. Now, we saw in the book of Romans that justification consisted of two parts. It consisted of being made righteous and the forgiveness of sins. Two things that God did. Here, justification is separated into two parts. Just as with, you know, Roman Catholicism, justification and sanctification being more or less the same thing, and Protestants split that and said, well, justification and sanctification are separate ideas. Here, they are separating justification even more. Forgiveness of sins is separate from being righteous or being made righteous. Two completely different things. Now, by getting the word of God, this is something that God has done for us, given to us, and this is a response that we have to have. So again, it is something that God is doing. Now, this is not something that's being poured into us. This is something that exists outside of us that God has done, and because of this, you have this ability. Now, Pelagius, when we talked about him, and we talked about like you know his understanding of grace, and his understanding of grace was not God pouring something into you, it was not God declaring something, but his idea of grace was the example that God gave us in all of nature, in everything that was around us, and therefore... That was the type of grace that man can respond to. And so there was no such thing as original sin uh, from from Adam, uh, that we agree with Adam when we sin, and it's because of that. But theoretically, it is possible for everyone, you know, for, for someone to live a perfect life and not need Christ. Now, what they did to make sure that they did not go the way of Pelagius, they very carefully put that first part in there that says, all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. Pelagius would not say that. Pelagius would say, all have sinned because we have uh, agreed with Adam, and we've done that. I, I know that it sounds very similar, but trust me, this type of wording is what is keeping them from being full-blown Pelagians, and for anybody to accuse them of being Pelagians. They're not. All right, so right after that, then, you know, that's forgiveness of sins. The next point is that justification, regeneration, and the new birth are wrought by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. So, to be justified, to be regenerated, and the new birth. Now, these are all in a particular order, okay? And, and whenever you're looking at statements of faith, these are not thrown together willy-nilly. People debate these, sometimes for years, and... People vote on them. They talk about them. They discuss them. Where you are putting wording in place, if it has the approach, if it has the look of a this, then that, then that, a first, second, third, that is of significance. That's of importance. So they would say justification first, regeneration second, and new birth. Okay. These are brought about by you doing something. All right. But First thing that you've done is you've repented, which means repented means you've turned away from your sins. You are no longer sinning anymore. You have turned away from them. Okay. And it's necessary for that to happen. If you want your sins forgiven, you have to stop sinning. That's, that's what that is implying. They might not state that outright, but that is the implication of it. Okay. 
and that you being justified, you being made right with God, then you being regenerated, being made a new creature and the new birth. Okay. You have to have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died so that you would be justified, regenerated and the new birth. Okay. These two points are separated, but they, they do go together in, um, in that aspect and with the, uh, the, the point after that we'll get to. Okay. So that justification, regeneration, new birth, they're all past tense. They are like with the acknowledging that you're a sinner part, like the, the past tense of that. And that you are then doing something because God has done something for you and you are then able to have faith and you are able to believe based on your own faith and what you're doing, you are now able to merit God's favor in that you are justified. You are regenerated and you're given this new birth. Now, this goes on to the next point when we get to this new birth understanding and this new birth, they then move it into sanctification. Sanctification says in sanctification, subsequent to the new birth, through faith in the blood of Christ, through the word, and by the Holy Ghost. It's a nice summary of what they're talking about. So for them, justification and sanctification, very, very closely tied in together. Okay. Next part. Holiness is to be God's standard of living for his people. You must be holy. In the baptism with the Holy Ghost, subsequent to a clean heart. Now, baptism in the Holy Ghost is not water baptism, okay? This is not the same as getting sprinkled, or actually, in their case, it would be getting dunked, okay? This is different. This is, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Most notably, the visuals, visible signs of that would be speaking in tongues. And we, and I, I just said that, the next point in speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance and that it is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Okay, I didn't read that ahead. I, I just said that based on my assumption of where they were going with it. Yes, that is what it means. Okay, so when you are saved, you are, you know, repenting, you're turning away of your own power. Okay, you, by conviction of the word of God, turning away, and by doing so, repenting of them, asking for forgiveness, your sins are forgiven. Then you believe in Jesus, and by doing that, it then merits your, self, your justification, your regeneration, and your new birth. How do we know that you have a new birth? Because by doing all these things, you are going to be a holy person and we know that you are going to live holy and perfect and upright before God because you have done this and you will be baptized by the Holy Ghost and being baptized by the Holy Ghost, you're receiving a clean heart, you are sanitized and evidence of that sanitization is speaking in tongues and by speaking in tongues, this is evidence that you have been justified. Again, this is a gratia infusa. God is infusing in you. It's a sanative view, okay? Rather than what would be considered um, the favor dei, favor of God, which is the forensic, this is a gratia infusa. This is God, you know, changing your heart and sanitize you, the sanative view, okay? And therefore, evidence of that, speaking in tongues, okay? Now, everyone that does this, Water baptism is next, and we'll talk a little bit more about this after this message.
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, so we talk about water baptism here. And it says that in water baptism by immersion... Okay, it means that you're going under the water. Why? You know, well, because they would say that that is how we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Christ died and he went into the grave. So he went, um, you know, under the water, okay, and or, or under the ground. And we go underwater to sim- symbolize that. Now, technically, Jesus was put in a tomb, in a cave, and a rock was rolled in front of it. He technically was not under the ground, because you could walk right into it, you know, it's not in the same way that we do burials, but they're reading their Bible and saying, well, if Jesus was put in a tomb, our tombs are underground, our graves are underground, this is how we're doing it, and this is a, a, you know, sign of the covenant that we are, you know, in Christ, but, you know, this immersion has to be done Okay, it's water by immersion. So if you were baptized by sprinkling, they would say it's illegitimate. Okay, now I was raised Anglican, so I was sprinkled as a baby. I know, I mean, infant baptism, they'd freak out on that, in which they did. Whenever I went to a Pentecostal church, um, very early after I decided to rededicate myself to Christ and I was going to live for him no matter what, I didn't, I didn't care what people said, I started going to a charismatic Pentecostal church because I wasn't, I didn't feel like going back to a liturgical church. I didn't understand it. I wanted to go to something and I gravitated towards this. It also, you know, was easier for my wife who wasn't raised in a church to move to more of this style of worship. And because of this teaching, I was rebaptized. And I was rebaptized through immersion because they would tell me that my first baptism was illegitimate and that I wasn't truly baptized and I needed to be baptized. Now, of course, I reject that all now. I, I hold to my original baptism, but um, I did go through that. I was somebody who would be considered a rebaptizer, one who was rebaptized. I guess technically I'd be considered an Anabaptist, which is funny because if you listen to the theology pit, maybe that's why I have such a problem with them because I felt kind of duped. Uh, by it in a way. And it's, um, you know, the, the wound's still there. It's very, it's, it's still you know, difficult in that way. Um, but at no fault of the people, you know, that, that did it. They, I mean, wonderful people, the pastors, I still have a, a great deal of respect for and, and admiration. I don't, you know, hate them in any way. Um, I just, I don't care for that theology. I don't care for that denomination and, uh, in that aspect of it. So they do say, repent should be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is different from oneness Pentecostalism, which believes baptism in the name of Jesus only, and they would be considered more uh, modalist, that um, it's only in the name of Jesus, and that modalism is that, you know, there's one God um, who puts on a different hat. You know, at one point he's the Father, at one point he's the Son, at one point he's the Holy Spirit, okay? It's, it's a heretical view. This church and most Pentecostals do not hold to it. Only those who are oneness Pentecostals hold to a heretical view, not um, the majority, I would say, of Pentecostals that you run into. But it it does exist, and there are some that are uh, modalists in that aspect. Um, T.D. Jakes is a very big uh, uh, Pentecostal uh, minister from Dallas, Texas. He has a very big following, and I know people that love him, hate me for, you know, saying this type of thing, but he is a modalist. I've looked at his understanding of the Trinity and that's what it comes out to be. He is, he's just a flat out modalist. 
So um, they would uh, see that. Um, they, they, the next point after the baptism by immersion is the divine healing is provided for all in the atonement. Okay, so everybody is able. This, this would be an unlimited atonement, not a limited. In the Lord's Supper and the washing of the saints' feet, they would, you know, hold that to be very important, and that would be you know, service of others. But they might literally um, do the washing of feet. Some of them have um, the church that I was a part of. We did do a foot washing ceremony before, um, and the Lord's Supper would just be seen as just that a a a memory, a, a um, remembrance, as they would call it. It's it's nothing more. It has no more um, grace value to it um, than that, than it just being a remembrance. They, now, this is interesting. They put in here, they believe in the premillennial second coming of Jesus, okay, first to the resurrect uh, the righteous dead and to catch away the living saints to him in the air, second to reign on earth a thousand years. So this is um, a, a view of the rapture. And when I see this, it immediately jumps out at me that they are dispensationalists. But I could have probably told you that if we wanted to look at their end times views, if I, we were talking about that, I could look immediately at what they hold to when they talk about the verbal inspiration of the Bible. And that tells me that they are dispensationalists that hold to a pre-millennial, um, pre-wrath, uh, rapture view. And what that and what where I get that from and why I can make that deduction is because everything that I said about the King James Bible with the Pentecostals, the most popular one that was going around um, for a lot of poor churches, which the Pentecostals were a lot of small groups, was the Schofield Study Bible. And the Schofield Study Bible at that time, I think it was uh, published 1902, um, the, the notes that were in it um, were all dispensationalist notes that um, taught a rapture, uh, taught a futurist view of the book of Revelation, taught a dispensational theology that the, um, the time uh, throughout history is broken up into different segments. Uh, they would also believe in the um, separation between the church and Israel, um, which is different from uh, covenantal theology that the church has replaced Israel or a replacement theology. Um, but I can get all of that just from that uh, first statement. I could really go through and guess almost entirely what they believe just from looking at that wording. So, you know, they, they believe in, in the rapture before the tribulation. Now, there are a lot of different views, and if I ever do a series on eschatology, the study of the end times, and the study of the church, which is ecclesiology, they kind of go hand in hand, um, we would get into all those different views, and we would talk about all that stuff. So the, And then finally, they, they end up by saying they believe in the bodily resurrection, eternal life for the righteous, and eternal punishment for the wicked. Okay, so... When you look at a statement of faith, that is how you can break it down from a soteriological aspect or from the aspect of viewing it from salvation and the application of the atonement. Now, if we go from there and we look at the Pentecostal Church of God, which is a little bit different from the belief of the Church of God, um, here's what they say on their salvation. Here's how it's worded. Salvation is made possible through the meritorious work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through Holy Spirit conviction. Okay, now, so you see what happens here? It's the work of Christ that he merited, all of God's, uh, he merited everything that needed to be done, similar wording to what you would see in a sanative understanding, okay? that there were treasures that were merited, okay? There's a reason that that word is in there and, and the, ne the necessity of it. 
through Holy Spirit conviction. So again, you must be convicted by the Holy Spirit, and therefore that conviction, that change in you, enables you to do something. So the action already, I can see in this first sentence that the action is taking place, okay, it with within you, okay. Now, it says, it goes on to say the second uh, sentence here, uh, godly sorrow works repentance and makes possible the experience of a new birth and Christ formed within us is the eternal gift of life. There's a lot in there and you're like, whoa, wait, what was that? Okay, godly sorrow works repentance, all right? So this conviction that the Holy Spirit is giving you is a godly sorrow and it's causing you to be sorry and to repent, okay? You make this repentance and that is what makes it possible to experience a born-again type belief, okay, this, this thing. And Christ formed within us is the gift of eternal life. So us becoming more Christ-like. Now, in the Roman Catholic view and the Eastern Orthodox view, it would be called um, theosis or deification, becoming like God, okay? That is what's being expressed here just in a different way. Okay, and you're thinking deification. Why don't you know? Yeah, that's actually what it is. And it's it's not something to shy away from. It's something to embrace because that is what sanctification is. But they are putting this in the justification realm, which is where I would disagree. So salvation is the gift of God to man, separate from works and the law, capital L, and is made operative by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, producing works acceptable to God. Let me say that again, because you you might be like, wait, what? I'll actually just read the first part of it and then go to the last part of it, okay? Salvation is the gift of God to man separate from works, producing works acceptable to God. What? Yeah, exactly. What they're saying is that it is separate from works and the law, but by you by grace, through your faith, by something that's poured into you and through your belief in Jesus Christ, that that will produce works acceptable to God. Now, by putting this in salvation and leaning it towards the justification, they may say, well, no, 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 sanctification part. We're not talking about this. Uh, we're talking about justification. I don't think so because it seems to have bookends and we're not even to the end of it. The end of it says, man is a free moral agent and can at any time after the new birth experience turn away from God and die in a state of sin with the consequences of hell to look forward to. That's what they say, which means they are not justified. Justification is not an act that God does. It is a potential result from what has been done. This is a sanative view and a holiness view, okay? Now, they, uh, you know, their first thing that they hold to in their statement also is, is the scriptures. And it says the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the inspired word of God, presenting to us the complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men and constituting the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. Okay. So, you know, you can, I can get an idea of where they were going from there. It is not as explicit as the last one, the church of God, but this is the Pentecostal church of God. This is a separate thing that's, that's happening with it. But notice with that salvation aspect of it again, 
they say that um, salvation is a gift of God. Okay, so it's something that God gives us. Now, God gives us many gifts that do not save us and many gifts that do not justify us. But they're saying that this is a particular one that God gives us in order for us to be able to save ourselves through what he has done, through the meritous work of Christ. We are able to earn our salvation again this is not works-based salvation. This is meritus-based salvation. And, you know, in the beginning of the podcast, that's why I wanted to go over that and really express, you know, the, the differences between that because this is still in the sanative understanding, okay? This is different from the forensic view. This is different from the view that I hold to, that it's all God and not us. This is, that would be called monergism. This is God and man, synergism. But this is a little more, radical in holiness than the church of God because they say that you can lose your salvation. Now, the church that I used to belong to, the Pentecostal church, would fall under this line. They would say things like, if you were in an auto accident and you said a cuss word before you were killed, you would go to hell because you had not repented of that sin. You died in your sins. That is what they are saying here. Okay. Salvation is the gift of God separate from works and of the law. So separate of anything that you can do without God and of the law, but it is made operative by grace. So grace is poured into you. You are then able to have faith in Jesus Christ and it is your faith in Jesus Christ, not the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but faith in Jesus Christ that produces works that are acceptable to God. What are those works that are acceptable to God? It is the works of salvation that you do. That is what this statement is saying. They also hold to um, you know, baptism of the Holy Ghost, so that's the speaking in tongues, water baptism by immersion. And um, then they actually have a, a section after all that, you know, and it's, it's sort of this, uh, similar to the Church of God. They get into sanctification and that the Bible teaches that without holiness, no man can see the Lord. Okay. So they believe in, let me continue on. We believe in the doctrine of sanctification as a divine, a define, as a definite yet progressive work of grace commencing at the end of, uh, at, at the time of regeneration and continuing until the consummation of salvation. So what this is saying is if you live this perfect life because you can, that and you don't sin and everything, then you will be sanctified and you also will be justified. Okay, it's all rolled into one. Now, you have to be completely holy. In this way, you are making yourself holy. Now, with the Roman Catholic view, you have the concept of purgatory and purgatory is you admitting that you're a sinner and that there is no way for you to, you know, uh, atone or merit your you know, forgiveness, get enough grace in order for you to go to heaven directly. You have to go through a purging, a cleansing, because nothing unholy can stand before God. This is why purgatory exists. Some theologians today would say that purgatory might be like the blink of an eye or like a car wash. You don't even notice it. You just go through it. It's something that happens. Other theologians from the past would say, no, it's a long period of time, thousands of years. Perhaps some popes are still there, you know, for millions of years. It all just depends. But they at least have a, you know, a, a clause in there. Everyone in purgatory is going to heaven. They're just being purged. In this one, there is no purgatory. You only have now to, you know, atone for all of your sins through the work of Christ. If you don't atone for all of them and if you don't hold to that, you go to hell. That's it. 
That's that's all that you have. The consequence of hell is what you have to look forward to is the way that they <laughs> word it. To look forward to, oh, I can look forward to hell. Okay, wonderful. All right, so we are going to and even have a section here on uh, tithing at the very end. Here, you got to put in the tithing. You know, you got to have the money. Got to get that concept. Um, they spell out with the coming of the Lord, the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, imminent. Um, you know, that's a whole different eschatology thing. Okay. So then we go to the Southern Baptists, and the Southern Baptists on salvation would say that salvation involves the redemption of the whole man. Okay, so that is however you want to break it up, material, immaterial, body, mind, spirit, um, however you want to say it, you know, traducian, uh, creationist, um, uh, trichotomist, dichotomist, however you want to say it's the total man, it's the whole man. And this is hearkening back to, you know, what Christ did for us, that he had to redeem everything. Okay. It is freely offered to all who do something. And that something is accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you do not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you cannot be redeemed. Okay. Who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer in, in the, its broadest sense. Salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. When you have a list, what do we do? What's first? Regeneration. That comes first. Justification comes second, sanctification next, and glorification at the end. What does that sound like? It sounds like the last two ones that we just read. They are just kind of putting it in this order. And this is the uh, Southern Baptist Church. I'm getting this from sbc.net forward slash about us forward slash basic beliefs dot ASP under salvation. So what am I seeing here? It's a sanitive view. It is not forensic. It, the action is taking place within you, not outside of you. It is God pouring something in you, namely that you are given the ability or you already have the ability to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Once you accept Christ as Lord and Savior by you doing that, you are then saved, okay? Now, there is debate within their eternal salvation, perseverance of the saints. I'm not going to get into all that right now. I don't have the time for it. But notice that this is a lighter sanative view, but it is still a sanative view because you must be regenerate first. How are you regenerate? You must, by your own free will, you must freely accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior with no influence on you. So, do you have provenient grace that comes in and bounces the scales because you are a sinner and then that gives you the ability if you say yes? Well, then that is a sanitive understanding. The action is taking place in you and not in God. God is doing it, but the action takes place in you. That is the definition of a sanitive view, okay? A gratia infusa, grace of God being infused in you causing this. So you must be regenerate first. And then you can be justified. So where scripture says that um, God declares the ungodly righteous, they would say, well, that really doesn't fit. We don't like that. We have a problem with that. And understandably so. So regeneration has to come first and then justification, then sanctification, and then glorification. If they would say, well, no, we just put those four things in there. They're not meant to be one after the other. What comes? Well, then why don't I ever see it as glorification first? No, it's a timeline you know, that's, that's the whole point of it. Okay. They hold to, again, immersion of a believer in water. 
and it's completely immersion. And they spell it out here. It's an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and buried and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ. Okay. As you can see, all of these come from the Anabaptist tradition. Just by knowing what you know from the history of the application of the atonement and from salvation, you can look at, you know, all the different views, the big models that we went through, and you can read through stuff and say, yes, I know where you come from. And based on that, based on just this summary of the Lord's Supper or of, of, of salvation here, and just what we read, we talked about baptism and that sort of thing. If I were to give you a guess on where they put emphasis of the Bible within their statement of faith, where would you guess? Would you say up at the top? Well, let me scroll up and see. Okay. Oh, the very first thing on their belief is the scriptures. There you go. You notice the pattern that you have in a lot of these. Now, I'm going to spend a couple minutes and I'm going to go outside of the Christian faith for a second here because I want, I want to touch on this just so you can see people who claim to be Christians nowadays, but were not claiming to be Christians when their churches quote-unquote churches, originated when their belief system originated. And let's start with the first one. Let's talk, start with the Mormons, okay? Joseph Smith um, did not believe that any of the other churches or creeds or denominations or anything was correct, that, you know, the um, angel, I think it was Gabriel, told them they were wrong. He was getting this idea when he, you know, found the golden uh, books, the golden tablets, the golden plates, however, whichever story you want to believe. And he got these magic spectacles that he wore in order to decipher the neo hieroglyphics to get the book of Mormon that taught him the true way they saw themselves as separate. That's why they are the church of Jesus Christ of the latter day saints, not of the earlier day saints. They are separate from, they separated themselves right from the beginning from Christianity today. Nowadays, they try to act like they're Christians, just like everyone else, even though their doctrine very much is different. And in a way, I think they're being disingenuous and I want to call them liars, but not all Mormons know this. Not all Mormons think this. They have no idea. Faith to them is a blind faith. It is not a biblical faith. Um, so when you talk to missionaries, look, you cannot out-nice a Mormon, okay? Mormons are extremely nice people, all right? Don't treat people bad just because they think differently from you or they claim to be Christians and they're really not. In Scripture, we are called to love people who are Christians and who are not Christians, to people who are believers and who are not believers. We are to give everyone respect because they are made in God's image. It doesn't matter if they're Christians or not. All right, that, they, That's stated in the book of Genesis, and I think it's also stated in uh, James or in Jude. And it's you just you treat people good simply because they are created in God's image. That's it. Articles of Faith from Mormon.org, okay, which is what I'm told is the place that you should go for, you know, a Mormonist understanding, Mormon's understanding. They, when they talk about salvation here, they believe that um, in number two, first off, they say, we believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. They do not believe in God eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
they believe that these are all separate things, separate entities, separate people, that they don't put it on their site because they hit you with a the hard theology later when you're part of it. Um, but, you know, they believe in Father God and Mother God and that they had spirit babies and Jesus was one of the spirit babies along with uh, Lucifer and all the other angels and everything, you know, all that stuff. So that's different right off the bat, okay? They do not believe in the same God. They're concept of godness is radically different from the Christians. Right off the bat, that's what I'm seeing. Second point that they have in their 13 articles of faith. We believe that man will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Okay, That wipes out original sin right there. This does put them in line with Pelagius, that they would say that it is possible for someone theoretically to live the perfect life and not need Christ. Theoretically, they would also state nobody's ever done it. Nobody ever can do it. Okay, but theoretically, it is possible. Number three, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by observance to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Number four, we believe that the first principles and ordinances of God's gospel, uh, of the gospel are first faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we believe that man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer the ordinances thereof. So what they believe in it, with salvation here is, again, a sanative understanding that, you know, it's faith in Jesus Christ, that that's what we have to do. It, it's a work that God has made possible. So again, this is not quite a works-based salvation. It is in the sense that the God that they believe in is not capable of being able to do this. How do I know that? Because if we ever get into Trinitarianism and we ever discuss the attributes of God, the type of God that they hold to is necessarily in time and space, therefore not eternal and cannot exist. He fails the uh, test of what we know God to be, not only from his re revelation, but through deductive reasoning. Also, a type of God that would be eternal, that they would hold to outside of time and space, could not be relational and could not love because God is immutable. God is beyond the ability to change. God is static. In order for him to be able to love, he must change himself in order to express this type of thing. It's a something that he had, and then he created something, and then he had to change in order to relate to it. Within the concept of the Trinity, you can actually have an expression of love being an attribute of God, and it's a communicable attribute, uh, because between the consciousnesses of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, you can have an individual love, you can have a corporate love, and you can have a dual love of two people or two persons or two consciousnesses together loving a third or loving something else outside of them. So it is something that God can possess within a Trinitarian understanding that in a Unitarian understanding, it cannot happen. Therefore, this type of God logically cannot exist. If this type of God logically cannot exist, then the faith that they have cannot be given to them because that type of God cannot be given them this faith. Therefore, they are towing the line in what would be a works-based salvation. 
because this type of God does not exist and cannot provide that type of grace because he cannot transcend time and space. He cannot interact because he is necessarily static. He would have to be deistic at best, which is a completely hands-off God rather than theistic, which is personal and involved. So that's where this problem comes in. But given argument's sake that they do hold to this type of theistic God, which would be irrational and logical for the way that they spell it out. If they did believe that, then this would come into a um, sanative view because four things have to be accomplished. Okay. Faith in Jesus Christ, not the faithfulness of Christ, but faith in him. Second, repentance. You have to then repent. You have to do something. You're meriting God's favor by doing all this stuff. Baptism by immersion for the remission of your sins. Again, something that you do. And laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Once all four of those things are done, A, B, C, and D, you are then saved. Okay. I don't know about you, but maybe I would rather go and pay money to pray in front of relics or, you know, get a plenary indulgence in Roman Catholicism. Really, it's the same method. It's the same mode. It's the same type of structure. It's a law system that is in place. Finally, let's talk about Jehovah Witnesses. Okay. They say that um, in, in their aspect, now Jehovah Witnesses, you know, this is the theology pit we're out of Pittsburgh. This is a hometown cult right here. Charles Taze Russell, all right, he was the founder of the Jehovah Witnesses. This is where it started. This is a global belief now, a global faith, a global religion, however you want to say it, that originated in Pittsburgh. Charles Taze Russell was a Seventh-day Adventist um, who left the Seventh-day Adventist and started his own belief called the Jehovah Witnesses. They believe Jesus to be the Archangel Michael, um, they believe that there will only be 144,000 that will be saved, that will go to heaven. Um, and this is what they have to say about salvation from their uh, website, uh, jw.org. And it's on their um, uh, forward slash en forward slash Jehovah's dash witnesses forward slash FAQ forward slash Jehovah dash witnesses dash beliefs forward slash. If you want the exact address. That's where you can go, but just go to jw.org and look around. I'm sure you'll find you poke around enough. Now it says here, salvation, number five, salvation is deliverance from sin and death is possible. It's possible through the ransom sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Ransom sacrifice. What's that ring a bell to ransom of ransom, the Satan view. Okay. Now this you know, it can also be seen as, um, you know, the propitiation, but it's a ransom that is made. Um, it could ring governmental view for you. Um, okay, so death is made possible. Not guaranteed, but it's made possible. All right, now, how do we benefit from this? Well, it goes on to say, second sentence, to benefit from that sacrifice, people must not only exercise faith, in Jesus Christ. So it's not just simply having faith, but it has to be a visible faith that is exercised in, okay? It's not the faith of Christ, but your own faith. But they also need to change the course of their life and get baptized. Three things you have to do. You have to exercise faith in Jesus. You have to, um, uh, oh, I lost my place. Uh, change the course of your life, live completely different, and get baptized, okay? If you don't do those things, then it's not possible for you to be saved. 
A person's works prove that he is his faith is alive. However, salvation cannot be earned. It comes through the undeserved kindness of God. Undeserved kindness of God. Okay? Well, how if we can't earn it, then why did they just spend that sentence saying that it's not possible deliverance of sin is possible through the ransom of Satan and to benefit from it, you have to do these things. You have to earn it. It has to be earned because they're trying to say it is not a works-based salvation that we have to do a bunch of stuff, but it is a meritous salvation that is provided by God that we can actually merit his favor. We can actually earn his salvation through what he has done that he's poured into us. The action is taking place. Now, again, Jehovah Witnesses are, you know, monotheistic Unitarians. They do not hold to a Trinitarian. Therefore, like the Mormons, they have the same problem that their version of God, their understanding of Godness, cannot exist rationally, logically, nor biblically. Okay, so they don't even come anywhere close to a forensic declaration. None of these did, okay? Now, as I've said in the past, do you need to hold to the view that I hold to that God declares you to be just in order for you to be just? And our answer is no. The doctrine of justification simply tells us what God says about us. You can deny it all day long and it doesn't change the fact that this is the way God does things. Okay. Now, this type of God in Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses cannot save because it does not exist. Within the Pentecostal church, the church of God and the Southern Baptists that we talk about, that type of God that they hold to actually can save and actually can logically exist, not illogically. Even though they would deny what I'm saying about, you know, gratia, not, not gratia infusa, but um, the favor dei, the favor of God, that he declares you to be righteous and therefore you are. And it is not a sanative, but is a forensic. They might deny that. They might give it lip service, but deny it in their statements, obviously, that this is, you know, a difference that we hold, but in no way does it affect anyone's justification because you ignore something or even flat out reject it. It's still the way that God does things. All right. So, um, hey, check me out, samsonstick.com. Visit me at the Theology Pit on Facebook. And I think now, even though I'm staying on the topic of sanctification or justification before we continue uh, to the Bible, it's definitely time for me to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.